This episode is brought to you by Malomo. Malomo offers Shopify brands the tools to turn shipping from a cost center into a profitable marketing channel through branded shipment emails and order tracking pages. This episode is also brought to you by Outer. Outer creates the world's most comfortable, durable, and sustainable furniture made from proprietary fabrics that are both eco-friendly and water, stain, fade, and mold-resistant. This episode is brought to you by Gorgeous. In case you don't already know, Gorgeous is the leading customer support platform built for e-commerce companies. Stay tuned to hear from Alexandra Collis, the Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly, an online fashion powerhouse, to hear how Gorgeous enables Princess Polly to manage all of their customer service channels in one place. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 81 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Mike Huffstetler, the founder and CEO of Basque. Launched on National Sunscreen Day in May of this year, 2021, Basque is a lightweight, non-oily, easy-to-apply sunscreen that feels good on your skin and is better for you and the environment. In this episode, Mike shares with us his entrepreneurial journey from growing up in Maryland as one of five siblings to interning at the White House to working for a nonprofit in Chicago helping startups to creating and launching Basque. He talks with us about his struggle in trying to figure out what he wanted to build, why people don't like wearing sunscreen, how he overcame stage fright, and why he's on a mission to end skin cancer. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe or text me at 310-510-6044 to tell me your favorite brand or episode or simply say hi. I'd love to hear from you and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Mike. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. I'm super excited to hear your story in Building Basque. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Uh, thank you for having me. So you're calling in from where? New York City. New York City. All right. I'm in Los Angeles. Nice and sunny over here. We're losing the sunshine here. <laughs> I know, right? Are you from the East Coast? I'm from the East Coast. I've lived all over though, but I've, uh, I was born and raised just outside of DC and in Maryland. Where in Maryland? A little town called Potomac. Where is that? I ask because I'm from Delaware and I feel oh. like I, I tend to have a lot of people. I feel like from Maryland and in that little tri-state area. Yeah, there's something in the water there. <laughs> right. We like to go do big things, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's what's in the water. Potomac is right near Bethesda, Maryland, um, which is kind of like the more well-known one. Chevy Chase and Bethesda, which are just like these nice little suburbs that are just outside DC. And by the way, where are you from in Delaware? Well, I actually lived in Maryland for a hot second. I mean, we okay. moved to Elkton, Maryland. 
<laughs> so yeah. like, didn't have the great reputation at the time for, <laughs> and that's kind of why we ended up living there and lots of up and downs growing up. But yeah, it, <laughs> I, I grew up in, uh, my parents met at the University of Delaware in Newark, and that's kind of where I grew up. Well, I asked because like this idea for Basque hit me when I was in Delaware in, in Bethany Beach. Bethany Beach. Oh my God, you're taking me back now. <laughs> Bethany, Rehoboth, Dewey was oh, the yeah. party beach. Like every kid from high schools in Delaware for senior week would go down to Dewey. Yeah, the starboard. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yep. What was it like growing up? What did you want to be as a kid when you were like, I want to, when I grow up, I want to be a blank? You know, this is the thing where I was always really jealous of people who like knew from the very beginning that they wanted to be a musician or they wanted to be a doctor. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I actually, I'm 35 now. I still don't know what I want to do. But one thing I always knew from the very beginning was that I love people. And I've always had this like robust social calendar and I've always had a slew of friends. And so you had, you, you were one of five siblings. One of five. I was the the middle of the five. There's always there's all sorts of ideas around how the middle child behaves and what they need. But we were a really tight knit group of siblings. And you know, with five kids in the house, there was like there was always something going on. So, you know, it was borderline chaotic at times, but there was always some action. And that was something that I really, really enjoyed. And have, you know, also have always had a ton of friends and a very busy social calendar. My mom said that even as like a five-year-old, I had a play date like every day. And, you know, I've always just been a really social kid. Like president of your class type of kid? Well, I lost for president. I did run. You ran though. You <laughs> I ran. Did run. I did run. <laughs> um a story my mom always loves to tell people is that I would go up to random, like a toddler, I'd go up to random people in the grocery store and say, Hey, I'm Mikey. What's your name? And just like, I just love people. Um, and that's kind of always been a constant throughout my life. That's interesting. I hope my kids like that, you know, just like totally not shy at all and just going up saying hello. What do you think it is about growing up that made you like that? Do you think that's just in your blood or is that like because your parents kind of like were like, here, hold my kid. And like, we're really like promoting socialism. I think it's part of my nature for sure. I do think there is a little bit of the only child thing going on where, you know, you really have to earn your attention. And so I think that those are two factors of it, but I'm, you know, a pretty social person. And honestly, it's, it's suited me, I think, really well. Um, I've got all these amazing friends and, you know, all the good things that have happened to me in my life are as a result of a relationship with a friend that led to another relationship. That's how I met my wife. You know, all these great things that have happened to me in my life have happened as a result of kind of being a gregarious person and and always having a lot of friends. I think to better answer your question though, yeah, I never knew what I wanted to do growing up. And I was really jealous of those kids that had this like profound sense of what they were going to be when they grew up. And I did know that I wanted to do something impactful. I wanted to do something important. I didn't know what that was. And I kind of just 
tried out a bunch of stuff. In my career, I've certainly gravitated to things that have some sort of like impact element associated with them. Like what? What were your first couple jobs growing up? Like what was your first job? I think my, (laughs) this is certainly impact oriented. My first internship and actually internships throughout college were all political. So I worked on Capitol Hill. I worked in the White House. How was that? Who was in the White House when you were in there? W was in the White House. Now, here's the really interesting thing. And this speaks to this whole notion of I don't know what I want to do when I grow up. Freshman year, I worked for Senator Ted Kennedy in his Senate office. Then the next year, I worked for George Bush's White House. Could not be more different. And then the third summer, I kind of came back to the middle with John McCain. But, you know, the funny thing that happened because I went from a Democrat to a Republican the next summer, I definitely had the least important job of all the interns at the White House. I was in children's correspondence, literally answering letters from kindergarten classes saying, hey, I think your dogs are really cool and sending them back a picture of Barney and Miss Beasley with a paw print. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's so much impact. (laughs) Yeah, no, I was really doing God's work there. So you worked in politics thinking, I'm going to make a big impact. And then what ended up happening? So I actually, when I graduated, I went to Boston College. And when I graduated, I started working for a political consulting firm. And we were working with Republicans and Democrats alike. And we were approached by a tech startup in Boston. And they were really trying to get their browser technology into the political world. And we had a lot of success getting them some really marquee clients. And then we also worked with a bunch of nonprofits and even sports teams. And after several months of working with them, they reached out to three people on our team and asked if we wanted to come work for them in Boston and leave the political world and join them. And uh, all three of us did. This moment completely changed my path and, and course in my career. Nice. And so how did it change it? Well, I always thought I'd, you know, be in D.C. and be working in politics and be president one day. Is that what was that the kind of path you were thinking? Were you like in the White House? Like I could make this my house. I certainly don't think that. But wouldn't it be, you know, cool? It would be kind of weird to live in the White House, though, right? There's like a (laughs) lot of people. It's like the biggest target in the U.S. Like, I mean, I just don't know if I could sleep at night in that place. Yeah, well, I certainly wanted to work there. I was a big fan of uh, the West Wing growing up. But, you know, we had this opportunity to go work for this startup. And we just thought it was so cool what they were doing. It was a bunch of young people who had graduated from MIT. And I think the, the CEO was the oldest person in the whole company. He was 25 or something. And <laughs> so we old. were like, wow, these guys have bunk beds in the office. And they're really doing cool stuff. And we were really all attracted to this culture and environment of the startup world. And all three of us said, yeah, we're coming. And we loaded up the truck and we all lived together next door to the office. What was the company called? The company was called Free Cause. It's now called Rocketon Loyalty. Um, It's since been acquired by Rocketon, which is a huge e-commerce company based in Japan. So that sounds like you had an interesting startup experience living and working together. And it was all, I mean, 
everything work was also life. Like every, we socialized together, we worked together. We, everybody had a mat under their desks so that they could sleep if we were working too late, but it was also fun. Like we all just had such a great time doing it. And, you know, we built something pretty cool, I guess, cool enough for Rakuten to want to buy it. And that whole experience was like, wow, this is the path to go. Like entrepreneurship and business and the startup world are so compelling. And I became very quickly addicted to it. Cool. And so after the acquisition, looks like you were there for a little bit of time. I was. And this was kind of like a I'll be candid, a one foot out the door kind of thing. And I convinced them to let me move to Chicago and work remotely for a while. And uh, so I had some a lot of experience with the remote life before it became so popular this year. Yeah, this was like way back, what, like 2010 that you were oh, gosh, yeah. working remote? I mean, that's like OG remote working. <laughs> yeah, so that was 2010. In 11, I moved to Chicago. I just wanted to live in Chicago. I loved Michael Jordan growing up and I thought it was a cool town. And through a friend of a friend, I was introduced to a guy named Kevin Willer, who was a BC grad. And he was about to launch as the CEO, this thing called 1871, which was this public-private partnership. And it was a nonprofit dedicated to building out the startup ecosystem in Chicago. And I had met with Kevin because I wanted to find cool startups in Chicago. And he said, well, hey, how about you join our team? And this was an amazing experience because I was helping to build this ecosystem in this really cool city. But also I was just surrounded by entrepreneurs all day, every day, and VCs and people who consulted with and mentored entrepreneurs. And it just like even further entrenched me with this idea that like entrepreneurship is such a cool thing. It is pretty damn cool. I got to say, you know, it's hard, but it's cool. It's hard and it's so challenging, but that's, what's fun about it. Otherwise it's boring. You know, life is kind of boring if you're not totally challenged and trying to do impossible things. Oh, I'm totally there with you. you know? <laughs> Maybe it's that you know chaotic upbringing with five kids in the in the house, but I'm totally with you. I don't know what it is, and that's why I try to figure out with this like nature versus nurture. Like, why are entrepreneurs so crazy? Why 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 do we think that that is exhilarating and fun, and other people feel like it's exhausting or like scary? Or I mean, it is, but like you know, they're not as attracted to it, I guess. Yeah, it definitely is exhausting. Yeah, I think that there's a, a level of ego about it. That's very true. It's it's definitely needed. You have to actually believe you're capable of doing ridiculously crazy things. Yeah, it's certainly hard. And everybody tells you how hard it's going to be. And I think every single entrepreneur has this idea of, well, it can't be that hard. It's definitely harder. First of all, I told you I'm a very social person your social life gets completely thrown out the door. Yeah, like, I know. I realized that too on my first company. And that was, I lost some <laughs> <yeah>. friends. <laughs> yeah, you just like, hey, I don't have time. Yeah. The stress is very palpable and you can feel it. And it is always on your mind. When you go to bed, when you can't go to bed, when you wake up, when you're in the shower, it's always there. It's always there. It's always there. So there is no off switch. When you're in it, 
you are in it. And that's tough. And you got to be on all the time, but especially for me as a, I'm a solo founder. Yeah. I know what that's like. That's hard. It's not fun, <laughs> but I don't know any other way, but it's, it's isolating. Yeah. You get it. Like, I wish I had that partner because then at least there would be like one other person. Right. To say, it's okay. We can, we can do this. Right. Like you have another champion, but also is like that invested in it, you know? Right. Right. Cause no one will be in, as invested in your company as you. Nobody cares. Nobody yeah. cares as much. I've got exactly. investors and everything, but they're writing lots of checks and, you know, mm-hmm. they, you know, even though they've got in, in a financial interest, nobody cares about the success of this thing anywhere close to me. You are one bet out of many bets that they're placing, right? Yep. And they mm-hmm. expect 80% to fail. So <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they're taking a flyer and I am like yeah. cashing out a 401k and like, mm-hmm. you know, putting all my eggs into, into this basket. You are not diversifying your portfolio. essentially. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other thing that I'll tell you, and this is like, this was crazy how, you know, this happened for me, but when I was launching this, a month before I launched, my wife gave birth to our first kid. Great timing. Yep. <laughs> it was just phenomenal timing. Congrats, by the way. Thank you very much. Just before launch, one of my very best friends suddenly passed away. A month after we launched, my grandfather passed away. I tell you all that because life doesn't slow down because you're trying to accomplish something with your startup. And so you have to deal with all these things when you're the only one who's there to deal with your company. There's something unforgiving about it. That's a lot of change and adjusting into a very small period of time. Yeah, it's been a, emotionally, it's been, personally, <laughs> professionally. Yeah, it's been crazy since launch. <laughs> so tell me the story of how did you come up with the idea for this business? Yeah. What was that aha moment where you're like, oh shit, this is actually a great idea. I need to do this. So I'd preface this by saying that, you know, I've always been, you know, since discovering the startup life, I've always been this entrepreneur, but I never, I never knew what it was that I wanted to do. I just knew that I wanted to start something and I knew I wanted to run something and build something. It's a frustrating place to be by that way. Cause I'm, you know, a builder and entrepreneur and you know, thinking about my next thing. And it's like, God, I just need the freaking idea because I'm sick of just sitting here. I need to get to work. You know, like you want to just go. And if you don't have that passionate idea, that thing you can wrap yourself around and push forward, you're like, ah, you're like this limbo. Is that what you're saying? You're kind of like in this limbo. Totally. And working for other people and doing these jobs, but then I've got, you know, a spreadsheet that I'm like adding to daily of new business ideas, you know? And so just like something that I have always wanted to do. So I've wanted to be an entrepreneur, never had the idea. And what I tell people about the starting Basque was I I really kind of stumbled into it. And it is the meeting of my personal and professional experiences one day in the aisle of a CVS in Bethany Beach, Delaware. And the professional is that, you know, I've always worked in startups. The stop before this, I was running a startup incubator in New York. And our whole goal was like, let's get all the coolest companies in New York. By virtue of it being New York, a lot of those companies were D2C companies. So we had 
Philly and Quip and Huron and Parade and a bunch of other really cool startups. And in talking with those entrepreneurs, I just became fascinated with this idea of D2C and challenger versus incumbent brands and previously assumed to be entrenched categories. And I started researching and reading everything I could get my hands on. And I read Lean Lux and 2PM, you know, every single day. And so I just had this thing in the back of my head that I was becoming pretty obsessed with this idea of D2C and digitally native brands. And so that's kind of in the background. The personal experience is that I have skin cancer in my family. My aunt is a three-time survivor of melanoma, but in 09, I lost my uncle to a melanoma. And that was really, really hard for all of us. I was really close with him. He was the most incredible, gregarious human being you'd ever meet. You know, he wrote a gossip column for the New York Post. And uh, you know, when he passed away, he said the Post loses its renaissance, man. He was a, a pilot and a French trained chef and this writer. Um, he was just a really cool guy. But, you know, I woke up to the importance of sun safety like I never had before. And one of the things that always stood out to me was skin cancer is the most diagnosed cancer in the United States, more so than every other cancer combined, despite the fact that it is easily, objectively, the most preventable. There's a little more nuance to it than this, but wear sunscreen, uh, even you should wear it every day, but even your periods of high exposure, just in those, you can decrease your chances of contracting it by 80%. And it's always just blown my mind that it still remains the number one most diagnosed cancer. What do we have to do to reduce this by 80%? You're saying wear sunscreen every day? 80% just if you wear sunscreen during your periods of high exposure. So, Oh, right. So you're going to the beach, put on sunscreen, and you've got a huge reduction right there. Right there. And really, you should wear it every single day. But I think baby steps with, with the market let's get to point A before we go to point B. You mean by, because not every option is healthy option, good option right now that's on the market to put on your skin every day. Well, no, I think it, it's the, it's the consumers. I did a big uh, research phase and we found out that almost 40% of Americans never wear sunscreen under any circumstances. That's kind of shocking, but I'm also very fair. So if I don't put sunscreen on, it's a very noticeable difference that's painful, right? But I think maybe for most people that they don't burn, they think, I think there is actually a misconception, correct me if I'm wrong, people that like tan really well, you know, they don't wear sunscreen because they're like, yeah, I just get tan anyway. So it's fine. Yeah. And that is a huge misconception and it's a problem. And by the way, the number I forgot to give you there is that's for people under the age of 45. So 40% under 45 don't wear sunscreen. Period. Wow. And, you know, it's a major, major opportunity from a public health perspective. For years after my uncle passed away, I had actually wanted to start a nonprofit. And the whole idea of the nonprofit was to give away sunscreen for free to people on beaches and public parks, like literally walk around handing people free sunscreen saying, hey, here's why you should wear it. You're out on the beach. And when COVID hit, I had a ton of extra time on my hands. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to finally do this nonprofit I've always wanted to do. 
And it was then after I got the 501c3 spun up, it's called the Skin Protection Foundation, SPF for short. And I went out to go find a sunscreen partner and I'm doing my diligence and I'm in the aisle of a CVS in Bethany Beach. And I had this like cartoon light bulb moment, like, oh my God, sunscreen sucks. And this is an archetypal D2C category where we have stodgy commoditized brands. They use bad ingredients. They're protected by all these supply chain moats. And, you know, the way they talk about sun care is either boring or outdated. And so I thought, you know, why can't we build a better for you sunscreen that's wrapped in a beautiful brand that's purposeful and intentional and really appeals to millennials and Gen Zs. Talk about sun care differently uh, in a way that gets people excited about it and then use those proceeds to fund the nonprofit. And so that was the idea. And every time that I stepped a layer deeper into this to prove to myself why it was dumb and I shouldn't do it, I was more convicted to do it. Um, And it just became a better and better and better idea in my head. That's incredible. That's pretty cool. Because then you already established that you had a passion. You're like, well, I don't really know what kind of product is in this world, but I know I want to solve this problem. And I'm going to go about it through a nonprofit route. And as you were looking for a partner, that's how you found your thing. That's a really cool story. And I think that's that's like exactly kind of what happens though, right? It, it, these ideas that people get to start these great businesses, it's really an unraveling of an onion that's so hard to kind of convey sometimes. And that's why I love having this show and talking about these stories is because no one would ever know that that's how you kind of came up with this amazing brand this better for you sunscreen, right? Without this kind of like story of why, like even with your uncle and it's really crazy. The other thing too, is like all this stuff was, you know, 10 years in the making. Right. And then they all just kind of like met at the tip of this spear one day. Um, And here's, you know, a guy who's been searching and thinking about what's that company going to be. Cause that was like in 2010, right. When your um, uncle passed away. Yeah. 2009. 2009. Yeah. And so that's kind of when it, it started and that was a very long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's so insane how things unravel. I know. It's nuts. (laughs) It takes so much, it takes so much longer than you think. Oh, if you had asked me two years ago, if you had told me two years ago that I'd be running a sunscreen company right now, I would have said, okay, how does that work? I've never worked in sunscreen. I've never worked in personal care, which by the way, I consider to be advantages at this point. You know, but here we are, and it's something that I'm super, super passionate about. And it really fits that kind of lifelong search of even though I didn't know what I wanted to do, I knew I wanted to do something impactful. And the goal and mission for this company isn't to like gobble up market share from existing sunscreen providers and turn it around and sell it to some big CPG company. We want to and this is kind of ambitious, but we want to end skin cancer. And if we build a company that makes it enjoyable and fun to wear sunscreen, as opposed to being a chore, we can get sunscreen into so many more people's hands. We can increase the size of the market. And if we're doubling down by donating 
directly to our nonprofit who we've already donated in the first year, or sorry, in the first four months, we've already donated 15,000 units of sunscreen. We can get it into even more people's hands. And I think that over time, we can make a really, really serious dent on the skin cancer problem. I hope so. You know, actually just a few years before you lost your uncle, I lost my grandfather to melanoma as well. Oh, a really so nasty, sorry. nasty cancer. And uh, my grandmother also had skin cancer. Delaware, you know, we were all in Delaware, but yeah, so she, it's um, not a good thing, but she used to say how she used to wear, she was a nurse. She would talk to me about how she used to put baby oil or some kind of oil and they would go on the roof of the hospital and like bathe in the sun with this oil because they didn't know. They didn't yeah. know back then that it was bad, right? And they thought they were just trying to get a nice tan. I know. And there's so many stories about our parents' generation doing that. And then the tinfoil wrapped up, holding it underneath your face to try to get as much sun reflecting on your face as possible. Oh, that gives me nightmares. And then the tanning that they used to do in prom when like all the girls would go to the tanning beds. I'm guilty of doing that. And it's not a good thing to go to these tanning salons and try to, oh boy. Those are very bad. PSA to anyone listening, do not go to tanning beds. Yeah, right. I think my aunt bought one and had one in her house. Oh, wow. Next level. <laughs> Next level. <laughs> Next level. Yeah. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Did you know that brands like Magic Spoon, Mudwater, and Caraway get an average of 20 times the return on their investment when using Malomo? Customers track their orders four to five times before it even gets to their door. And instead of sending them to the carrier's tracking page, Malomo built a tool to help brands optimize post-purchase marketing. Use order status emails and tracking pages to spur engagement and drive additional purchases by showing new products, sales, subscription options, and other engaging content simply by being proactive in managing delivery communications. Get 30% off your first three months with Malomo today by going to gomalomo.com slash stairway to CEO. While most people living in colder climates are getting ready to bring their outdoor furniture indoors to protect it during the winter months, customers of the popular brand Outer don't have to lift a finger. After all, outdoor furniture should stay outdoors, right? Made from durable materials like all-weather wicker that withstands temperatures down to negative 220 degrees with a marine-grade frame and legs, Outer ensures your outdoor sofa will stay good as new until spring and for many years to come. So if you're preparing to bundle up this winter, go get some marshmallows to roast over the fire pit and enjoy some cozy time outdoors with Outer. You can get $200 off on furniture purchases by using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. That's $200 off amazing furniture using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. I'm focused on our strategy and innovation in the CX department here at Princess Polly. I have a quote and I always tell our CX leaders that customer experience is the heart of an organization and we pump the blood and deliver the oxygen to the vital organs in the business to help them thrive and grow stronger. The gorgeous platform allows our agents a seamless place to just do it all. We are really there for the customer every step of the way if they want. Our customers expect quality and efficiency where they are. 
are. So the real question is, how do you get quality and efficiency across every single platform? And then once you have it, how do you maintain it? And I believe that with the Gorgeous platform, we can do that. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, go to gorgeous.com and mention podcast for two months free. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. So talk to me about how you kind of came up with this formula. You know, we were talking before we hopped on here about oxybenzone and some of these really harsh chemicals that are in sunscreen. Talk to me about the chemicals out there, the illegal ingredients and the innovative things that you've done with Basque to make it better. Yeah. Well, the thing that we knew was that Basque could not have oxybenzone or octanoxate. And there's only 14 active ingredients that you're legally allowed to use in the United States. Those two are used in 80% plus of sunscreens. Oxybenzone, to give you an example, is a hormone disruptor. It's the like literal dictionary definition of toxic. It stays in your bloodstream at above 0.05% for at least 28 days. And that's the longest that the testing has been done. And it stays there longer. It's found in breast cancer tissue. It's a really bad ingredient. And, you know, like we were saying before we started, like you shouldn't have to get cancer to prevent skin cancer. Right. It's like you either get skin cancer by not wearing sunscreen or by wearing it, which is crazy. Yeah. And so we knew we did, we knew that we couldn't have oxybenzone or octanoxate in our sunscreen. And, and, and we prioritized that. And from a product development perspective, the rest of it was based on a ton of research that I did when I first decided, you know, I'm going to go full on into this. And that research has really informed everything that we do um, from a product and marketing perspective. When you were in that CVS in, in Bethany Beach, what year was that? That was 2020. That was the very beginning of COVID. Oh, wow. So we escaped New York and you know, went down to, to Bethany Beach for several months. Okay. And so how long did it take? Like, what was the process in going through this product development phase? Yeah. So the first thing that I wanted to figure out was I wanted to learn as much as I possibly could about the market. And so I did this like three month research phase and it was like writing a college thesis all over again. It was kind of fun. And I totally nerded out, but I studied like the history of sunscreen from when it first showed up and why people got interested in getting tans in the first place, um, because that wasn't really a thing, but Coco Chanel made it popular and then the need for sunscreen and then the growth of the market and you know, the introduction of higher SPFs, but also we studied brand and marketing over time, you know, and how sunscreen has been communicated. And a lot of the messaging is either, you know, one of two things. One, here's a way to get super tan and beautiful without, you know, getting burned, which really promotes this kind of unattainable uh, idea of what beauty is. And then number two is just really clinical and boring. 
And, you know, one of the things that we're setting out to do is to make this exciting and fun and cool. Um, so that messaging doesn't really work. But the most important thing that we did in this research phase was we got data from 50,000 plus people. It was mostly surveys, but I talked to over 500 people personally through phone calls and Zooms. And I wanted to find out what are the things that prevent you from wearing sunscreen? And we got like the four kind of key barriers, but number one, far and away, I mean, way, way, way more than number two was people hate how sunscreen feels on their skin. Like, what do you mean? What do they not like about it? There's a lot of things. Think it's goopy. They think it's oily. Um, sometimes it's crusty. Or white, like it turns your skin white. Like if you've used any of that mineral kind of sunscreen, it's like, I'm already white. I don't want to be more white. You know, don't put paste on my skin. It's not nice. It's the white, the white cast is like, that's a huge problem. But I think like for most people, it's like, it just feels like gunky and gross. And like, they know they're wearing it and like, they really want to get it off of them. And they like, honestly, the, the key to good sun safety is reapplication. And so if you don't have a sunscreen that you want to reapply, then you're going to have issues. And so we became maniacally focused from a product perspective on building something that felt amazing. And these were kind of arbitrary benchmarks, but we endeavored to, in focus groups, have 95% of people tell us that they loved how it felt on their skin. And we wanted 90% of people to pick our sunscreen over others that we thought felt really good um, in a blind pick. And only when we hit those two benchmarks were we like, all right, we've got it. This is Basque. And how about the name? How did you get the name Basque? Where does that come from? You know, I, I worked with uh, a brand agency, first of all, who I love. They're Rowan Co. and they're based in New York and LA. And during this whole learning and, and, and research phase that we did with them, we kept coming back to this idea that we're a very purpose-driven brand. And we wanted to bask in our purpose. And someone threw it out there. I think it was Rebecca at Roanco threw it out there one day in a meeting. It's like, we're going to bask in our purpose. And everyone was like, that's the name. Bask is the name. And it may, it, it may seem like it's a little antithetical. And you know, we're all about sun safety. And then we're talking about basking. But, you know, we really don't think that you should be hiding from the sun, we want people to get outside and be active and vitamin D is really good for you. And 40% of Americans are vitamin D deficient, et cetera. We want you to be out in the sun, but to do it safely. And so, you know, Basque was number one on the list and it was just, it just was the perfect name for us. So what was your go-to-market strategy? You're like, I've got this cool name. We've got this cool branding. The product's not going to kill you. So now what? When sunscreen companies zig we like to zag 99% of the distribution and sunscreen is brick and mortar and we decided to go d to c with a handful of um, very targeted retail and by that i mean we wanted to be in boutiques 
and boutique hotels in upscale beach markets to put ourselves in front of our target customer in their time of need. And, you know, in hopes of, of getting brand exposure and converting them to D2C customers, but really just to like be in front of them uh, in beach season. And so that was the, that was the go-to-market. You know, everything was really focused on uh, digital advertising and influencer and earned media. Um, and we got a lot of really uh, positive press right out the gates. Allure was the the first piece that hit. And did you hire a PR firm? I did hire a PR firm, and they're called Azioni, and they are wonderful. So I would very highly recommend Azioni. And by the way, the reason that I hired a PR firm, I was talking to an entrepreneur who built a DTC company, and I was on the fence on whether or not I wanted to do this. Yeah, because it's pretty expensive. It's expensive. And he said, listen, like we hired a PR firm and we thought it was the best way to go because we didn't want to launch to crickets. That was his quote. <laughs> and I was like, well, I don't, I don't want to launch to crickets. Right. It, it was worth the expenditure on day one because, you know, I, I don't, I can't speak for all PR firms, but this one was phenomenal. And we got a piece from Allure out the gate that said, this is the first sunscreen I've ever been excited to reapply. And it feels like a lightweight serum from the neck down. And you can tell people that as much as you want in an ad. But when it comes from a publication like Allure, it actually really means something. And uh, so, you know, that was our, our go-to-market. It was really around influencer, really influencer gifting. And we've got a, a, a price point and product that lends itself to that. If you're selling sofas, I wouldn't recommend going that route. And uh, paid media and social and, and earned media with PR. Great. And so when was launch day? Launch day was National Sunscreen Day. What? On, uh, May 28th. That was strategic of you. <laughs> well, it was in May of this year? Yeah, just a few months ago. Wow. And so now that the PR go to market, the boom happened, you know, you launched. What happens after that? Because I feel like, you know, I think a lot of founders, they might do the same thing. They get this PR firm. There's lots of buzz when you first launch. How do you maintain the buzz? Yeah. Well, first you have to decide if you want to maintain the buzz and if that's an important thing for you. But who wouldn't want to maintain buzz? Well, just as expensive to maintain the buzz. Yeah. And so... You know, a lot of the things that you're going to do out of the gates aren't sustainable long term, but they make sense out the gate because you want to get off to a hot start. But, you know, I think for us, the key to maintaining the buzz is to have a really, really great product. And our repeat purchase rate in the first three, four months of running the business has been absolutely amazing. You know, I talk to investors and they'll tell me, you know, to have this number on a 12 month cycle is incredible. And we've got it. And then some on a four month cycle. So I think that the quality of your product is just so important, especially if you've got a consumable, like a sunscreen. What's the threshold for a good quote unquote repurchase rate? Like what's at the bottom and what's the best in a, in a 12 month period? These are benchmarks. These are my, my numbers. So really good would be 40% 12 month repurchase rate. 
most brands don't have that. Pretty good, like you can do some damage is between 30 and 40. And then if you're in the 20s, you should be a little concerned. And all this breaks down based upon you know what your acquisition cost is and what your break even and what your profitability is and if your first if your first purchase profitable or not and you know how much traffic is coming from paid versus organic. But those are the benchmarks. So how much have you raised so far? I'm assuming you fundraised. I fundraised. Yeah, I did just under eight hundred thousand. Tell me about what was fundraising like for you and what were some of the challenges that you faced along the way? Well, let me take a step back before I answer that question, which is just one of the crazy things about starting your own company is that you are going to do things that you have never done before basically every single day. You have to like completely learn something new and then like master it because the future of your organization depends on it. Or I'm sorry, you have to try to be a master of it. So I had never fundraised before. I'd been in organizations that had raised money before, but I had never fundraised before. And I actually had this like, honestly, two month period where I had like complete stage fright and didn't know what to do. I was like, I was like on page one of a pitch deck for so long. And I'd go up and I'd find some template and I'd start going down and I was like, this isn't it. Like writer's block. Yeah. And so what I, what I did to get over that was I just started calling people and not like pitching them for, for money, but just telling them the story and pitching them on what I was doing. You mean investors, like potential investors, you would just kind of reach out to and, and tell them the story. Potential investors are really like anybody who would listen. Mm, Cause you're just trying to, it's like pitch practice. You were trying to get the, yeah. Exactly. So I was just, I was just practicing and practicing and, 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 but like working it out with people and taking note of like what piqued their interest and what didn't and what they thought was exciting and what, what, what they didn't. And at the same time, I was reaching out to entrepreneurs to get their take. Like, how did you do this? What advice do you have for me? And I would recommend reading Paul Graham's stuff on, on the Y Combinator blog about how to raise money. That stuff is really, really good. And what I heard that really resonated with me was like, it's all about how you tell your story. And so I moved away from this idea that I had to replicate some template deck that everybody uses for fundraising. And I told my story and wrote that down and then put my deck together to fit the story that I wanted to tell. And after that, it just became like really fluid. And I had had a bunch of folks who had reached out to me and said, Hey, if you ever raise money for this, like, let me know. Um, I'd love to get involved. And so the first people that I reached out to were people who had told me that they had interest in potentially backing this. And a lot of those folks said yes right away. And then they would tell people that they were investing in, you know, Mike's company and it kind of spread. And it's an interesting thing. A founder of a personal care company who's done really, really well told me that a lot of investors, they just want to be like the cool kid. And if they don't see a deal and they hear other people are in it, they automatically 
are very enticed by that. So I kind of, I wasn't out there. Like I never cold emailed anyone and it wasn't really, I wasn't asking for intros and this was, you know, nerve wracking at times, but kind of like let things come to me. I think it's funny you say that because investors are kind of nerdy. Like they're nerds. They are finance nerds, right? That like, or lawyer, or, you know, they're like mostly finance nerds <laughs> that are running these VC funds, right? And did really well in school, went to Harvard, went to wherever, like Ivy League situation. And they just want to be part of the cool kids club and they don't want to miss out on the party. Uh, I, I mean, to a certain extent, and definitely at this stage, because what, what did I have? I didn't have anything. I had a, I had an idea and I didn't even have a name. But yeah, there's definitely an element of that. Um, I will say it was, I, it was way harder and took way longer and was way, ner- way more nerve wracking than I'm like letting on right now. Well, you got to open that up. So let's talk about a time where you fell flat in your face in an investor meeting and you're like, I'm never going to find funding for this company. When did that happen? More than once, I'm sure. Oh, gosh, it happened all the time. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if I can give you a specific example because it did happen quite a, quite a bit. But, you know, that's one of the challenges is you just have to, and I hate being told no. And no like, means not yet. That's yeah, all means. yeah. And so it's, it's really frustrating to get the no's but you have to be willing to deal with the nose. You know, building a company is tough. What are some things that you do to stay focused and energized to keep coming to work every day, making it happen? Well, my son was born in April. Um, Mine was too. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. What do you mean? One in April? April 11th. April 8th. Wow. Wow. Unreal. Your first? My first. My first too. What's his name? His name is Herbie. Herbie. Oh my gosh. So he's actually named after my my uncle uh, and my grandfather. Your grandfather's name was also Herbie. So it was Herbie Jr. Well, they were Herberts, but this this is Herbie. (laughs) Oh, very cool. I named my son too after an ancestor. What's his name? Well, so actually it's a whole line. Their last name was Marvin. And actually, I have this great, uh, great, great grandfather from the 1880s who used to own a bunch of bakeries and was one of the founding members of Nabisco Come on. and owned a company. One of the bakeries was called um, Marvin's Crackers. And I actually bought a box off of eBay that says Marvin's Superior Cracker Company. And it's- Oh, that is so cool. It's crazy. Yeah, he used to have- a. Yeah, they made crackers. Before there was packaging, crackers were put in these wooden boxes and wooden barrels. And they would sit in these general stores where you would, that's how you bought crackers back in the day before grocery stores existed. So, so he's Marvin. Marvin. Yeah. Marvin, and, Marvin and, and Herbert seem like they should be hanging out in the 1920s together. <laughs> I know, right? I know. I wonder if it's like this COVID wave of like using old names for your kids. Yeah. <laughs> All the COVID kids have like ancestor names. <laughs> yeah. So, but to answer your question, the motivation to be successful in this has never been greater. I got a kid. I got a kid to take care of now. 
But you know what? I, I also hate to let people down. And I've got investors who I really care about and I want them to make money on this and I want them to do well and I want them to be happy about it. And so, you know, that's a big motivating factor for me. And listen, this is a mission that I really, really care about. And if we can make a dent on skin cancer diagnoses, you know, what greater honor for, for me to bestow on my uncle and, and what a cool thing that we can accomplish to contribute to public health. So, you know, it's a really, really powerful thing that's motivating me to get out of bed every morning. That's awesome. Well, I love the mission and I hope you end skin cancer. Um, I wish <laughs> you all it. the luck and um, thank you so much for being on the show. Do you have any final advice to any entrepreneurs out there tuning in that are where you were just a couple of years ago when you were trying to figure out what you wanted to do and um, when to take the leap and how? I would say trust in yourself and just do it. There's never a good time. And if you keep waiting for that perfect time, your window will close. So do it. And yeah, I encourage anybody to make a bet on themselves. And listen, I'm early and you know who knows how this will play out. But I, I think that I won't regret taking a bet on myself and putting my destiny in my own hands. And so I would say just do it and work really hard at it. Absolutely. Well, congrats on the launch. I'm excited. We'll have to have a follow-up episode. Yeah. Where are they now? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. And I'm a big fan. So uh, it, was, it was great to be on here. And congrats to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.